Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I'm coming to you from the United Nations today. I'm here as part of Talk Radio Day, which is an annual event hosted by the United Nations Foundation and Talkers Magazine. And basically, they bring in talk radio hosts from around the country to the United Nations to speak with UN officials. I'm going to bring you two topical and particularly timely interviews right now. The first is with the Deputy UN Secretary General, Jan Eliasson. He's Ban Ki-moon's right-hand man and a longtime foreign policy hand, originally from Sweden. He is very deeply concerned about the situation in Iraq. And we, we, we spoke briefly, uh, but in depth, about the situation in Iraq and for the UN's perspective on this crisis. The next interview is with Bettina Lusher, who's a spokesperson for the World Food Program, who uh, also spoke about the situation in Iraq from a humanitarian perspective and also about how the World Food Program is managing its uh, response to the crisis in Syria. And one thing you know you can take out of both conversations, I know I did, is how the UN officials I've been t- speaking with all day, don't really disaggregate between the crisis in Iraq and Syria. They see it as part of the same whole. Uh, So here it is, my conversation with Deputy Secretary General Jan Eliasson. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. concerned are you right now for the situation in Iraq? What are your top concerns? Uh, we are, uh, of course, seriously concerned about developments in Iraq, but we are also seriously concerned about developments in the region. There is now an interrelationship between what goes on in Syria and what goes on in, in Iraq. So uh, this is uh, on the top of our list in terms of dealing with crisis today. Uh, what are you doing personally, or the Secretary of Boss, the Secretary General, doing personally to uh, help mitigate the situation in, in Iraq right now? We are, it seems we, to be getting worse by the day. <coughs> we are in daily contact with our special representative, um, Minister uh, Mladenov, uh, and he is uh, in contact with the government and he is in contact with the other parties in, uh, in Iraq, both the Sunnis and the Kurds. And I think he is uh, working in the direction of bringing the diff- different parties together so that you would have an isolation of the extremist groups, the ISIS, which has uh, now been successful in, uh, in uh, taking over Mosul and other towns. And I think the political strategy must be to uh, make sure that we do not uh, alienate any of the major groups in the country because they have to find a modus vivendi, a way of living together. And that is the best way of dealing with the uh, extremist groups. Uh, So you you discussed the interrelationship between Syria and Iraq, although it seems from from, uh, the perspective of the Security Council at least that diplomacy on Syria is just stuck and it's been stuck for a while. So in the absence of any unity at the Security Council, what path forward do you see for a diplomatic or international <coughs> solution to the crisis? 
Well, I, I think uh, the relationship is clear. ISIS has been extremely active inside uh, Syria, and now they are also active in Iraq. They were active already earlier there, and in fact their ambition is to create a, uh, a caliphate, uh, independent caliphate, uh, in, in that part of, of the world. They were also uh, very much active in the fighting, as still are, in, in Syria. So uh, what is now happening is, of course, that you will have the possibility of new alliances. For instance, the West, U.S., is reacting towards ISIS uh, progress. Iran is similarly uh, reacting uh, to progress in, uh, in Iraq. However, they are probably not active when it comes to the progress of ISIS in in, uh, in they are also on the, on Assad side in, in inside Syria. So you have you have different constellations now, and uh, I think the the main thing for Syria is to avoid uh, that we uh, send or that we support uh, the uh, arms going to to both sides and uh, the uh, the uh, also foreign fighters. So if this is a reminder to the Security Council that indeed the crisis in Syria is so dangerous that it has regional implications. This is a threat to international peace and security. Maybe we now can better make the case that the encouragement of a military victory and sending soldiers, uh, sending money for paying to continue war is not a very good idea. So, I, so do you see potential for, say, uh, the United States and Iran working together to stop ISIS in Iraq? Could that potential cooperation be leveraged in any way towards a diplomatic or international diplomatic solution to, to Syria? Or how likely do you think that might be? I mean, you've been in a, a well, foreign I, affairs for a long time. Well, I, I, of course, every situation has to be analyzed in its own in its perspective. So on the Iraqi front, you certainly see the possibility of uh, coinciding interests, I would say, between the United States and, uh, and Iran. In the case of Syria, unfortunately, uh, there is not a similar view. I would hope that uh, all parties would now realize that they would, in, in the interest of not having this conflict spread into the whole region, you have not only the problems around Iraq, you have also Lebanon, that now is this is a wake-up call for us to see the danger of feeding uh, those who believe in military victory, those who send in foreign fighters, and those who send in arms to have this horrible uh, nightmare continue. In, in just our, our final moments, it seems as if uh, Iraq uh, is like almost a domino to fall from, from the regional explosion of the Syria crisis. Where else do you worry uh, for this for the conflict to spread next? Well, the, How might it manifest? I, I would say the, the, the the major worry and implication, potential implication, would be if this uh, crisis in Iraq turns into more of a Shia-Sunni confrontation, because then that goes far beyond Iraq. It goes into the whole Muslim world. And here I think there is one relationship which is absolutely crucial, and that is the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Saudi have a very important role in influencing the uh, Sunni world, and uh, Iran has a very important role in influencing the Shia world. I think there is a great interest in a dialogue that can get started between Sunni uh, and Shia, and in country terms between Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia. But I know 
that the uh, misgivings, the suspicions are very deep, and uh, there is a great trust gulf, trust gap to be uh, to be bridged. But I, I would hope that the dangers of this confrontation that looms there uh, should re lead everybody to now lean back, think back, and think very carefully of what could get worse and take action now to avoid an, a, a very dangerous confrontation. Well, Mr. Deputy Secretary General, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You got, thank me, you. You got me talking more than I should, probably. Uh, and here's Bettina Lusher of the World Food Program. concerned is the World Food Program about the, the current situation in Iraq? And I guess so it's not like a, Iraq wasn't a massive World Food Program operation before. Are there plans to scale up? Yeah, um, we have people on the ground. Uh, they, of course, had to move to other locations. We already brought food to and will bring food to more than 40,000 people. But, you know, it's, a, it's really hard to watch um, when you see... Uh, how various groups are fighting and that civilians are on the run. We, of course, always take care of the civilians, and that is our, our big concern. We, of course, have right next door uh, the largest aid operation that we have ever done in Syria. Every single day we help 4 million Syrians inside the country, often under very dangerous circumstances. Um, we are bringing food to them, but we also help the Syrians that have fled to neighboring countries. But What's happening right now is it's like one crisis after another. You know, it's not just the Middle East, but we also have a big crisis in the Central African Republic, in South Sudan. So it's really tough being humanitarian these days. But our people are doing, I think, an amazing job with, with helping people. Uh, so I was uh, on on the Syria question. I, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll talk about the broader pressures to the mm -hmm. humanitarian system, which I think right now is probably under unprecedented stress. I was speaking to um, I think someone from the World Health Organization a few months ago who said, you know, never before had there been sort of this successive massive crises from the the Philippines typhoon, mm -hmm. Central African Republic, South Sudan, and Syria, mm -hmm. all within mm -hmm. like 11, 12 months of each other, mm -hmm. um, and all happening at the same time. All, yeah, you know? all sort of happening on top of each other. Because once they start, you are staying there for a while, mm -hmm. and so it's like multiplying. Mm -hmm. So how, I mean, how is this affecting the World Food Program's operations? Have you had to scale back in certain places because of, you know, emergent needs elsewhere? Yeah, the, the important thing to remember is that we are 100% voluntarily funded. In order to help, we need money. And governments, I think, are really stretched now because there are so many humanitarian crises. So in some of the trouble spots, where there are no TV cameras, you know, because we didn't get the money, we had to do ration cuts. That's the hardest thing you ever want to do if you have to cut back on rations because there's just simply no money. We did that, for example, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where we just simply couldn't feed all the people that we were hoping to feed. So, what, so what is, is the next best option to feed them half the calories? That That's you sometimes what you do. Feel? Sometimes you, you, you make the rations smaller. Sometimes, um, you know, they're just people. That's what people do. You know, people that are hungry, the first thing they do when they're in a big crisis is they skip meals. Um, what we, tr you know, we try to avoid ration cuts as much as possible, but if there's no money, then there's nothing we can do. Uh, on Syria, so there's this sort of debate that's happened, that's, that's ongoing about the best way to deliver aid to mm -hmm. Syria, with some arguing that 
sort of current operations which require the cooperation of the government of Syria. And I presumably your biggest office is probably in Damascus, I would imagine. Um, that, that ought to be abandoned in favor of cross-border humanitarian aid operations. What is the World Food Program's like, sort of take on this, and, and how, how do you approach this question? But the most important thing is what everybody agrees on, that our aid workers need to get to the people wherever they are. There are many people that we cannot reach because the warring factions don't allow us in there because there's too much fighting going on. Um, you know, if you feed four million people, uh, that is like already a huge achievement. And what we're doing is we're, do, we're doing some cross-border operation, but the important thing is we're also doing a lot of cross-conflict lines operation, meaning we always have to negotiate with all sides. And, you know, there are many sides in Syria. Um, you have government faction, you have all kinds of military faction. In some places you just simply have bandits uh, that, that are making our life hard. So we always, we cross lots of battle lines in order to get to, to people. And I think the important thing is we have to be flexible. We cannot give up. It's, it's not an either-or question. You, you try to get as much access as possible. But we cannot risk what we already have achieved, that, you know, four million people are being fed now, and they have to continue to be fed. So we just, I think, have to be flexible on this. So there is, I mean, so there is a risk that should um, aid flow, say, over the border, from Turkey without the consent of the Syrian government that humanitarian operations currently ongoing might uh, sort of be forced to, to, might be kicked out of the country? Well, that's what is, is we that can, a concern? I mean, is, that's, is that like that's a what we cannot. That's what we cannot risk. We cannot. That cannot happen. I mean, we just have to keep on feeding all the people, and we have to be able to feed more. That's the goal. What we want, and you know, and and I think that's the urgent appeal to all sides in this conflict that our aid workers safely can reach more people that are besieged in areas where we can't go to. And can you explain how does aid get to Syria? Mm -hmm. Is it flown in uh, via Damascus? Is it is is it sent in through a port? Um, and uh, I guess it's just like sort of walk me through the bureaucracy of right. getting aid from a donor country to uh, Syrian, the Syrian yes. people. And it's, a, it's a interesting and in, in, in many ways pretty straightforward. Um, governments give us money. Uh, we start shopping for food on the international markets. Uh, then we bring you know, rice or other things on ships um, into, for example, the Syrian port of Tartus. Then it's being unloaded, it's being brought on trucks, uh, you know, into warehouses, is being reformed, and then it goes into uh, to Damascus, and from there it goes to the various regions. <coughs> where, you know, local NGOs and the Syrian Arab Red Crescent are giving it to the people. We also have um, have uh, the Lebanese port of Beirut. A lot of that aid is going that way. So it's uh, trucks and it's, um, and it's boats and a lot of human energy. <laughs> and then, and so, to get the cross-conflict lines, mm -hmm. I mean, that requires, I mean, you have to negotiate on a case-by-case -case basis, I would imagine? Yeah, imagine. always, always. And sometimes there are like 50, you know, checkpoints that you have to cross because you're at, before you're at your final destination. And, and so it's a lot of, um, you know, you have to try to establish really strong communication lines with all sides so they know we are coming, they let us through, they know aid is coming, 
and that nobody attacks us. So you said there are 4 million people being served by WFP in Syria. Mm -hmm. How many people are, are you missing because you're not able to cross conflict lines or just they're, they're otherwise inaccessible? Yeah, they're like, I think it's like quarter million to 500,000 people in areas that we can't get to that, you know, and I don't know whether you remember, for example, the city of Homs when a few months ago our people went in for the first time after 600 days. And so the food trucks came in with the UN convoy and then they were ambushed. Um, and they came back the next day because they wanted to make sure that those people who hadn't gotten any food in, in 600 days, no aid supplies in 600 days, and uh, that they would reach the food. So our guys and gals, it's always men and women, and many of them are Syrian citizens themselves that stayed and want to help their fellow uh, countrymen. Uh, they take incredible risks, but they get the job done. But it's huge, so difficult. Uh, Bettina, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. You can subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes and find every episode on UN Dispatch. We're also available on Stitcher Radio, which is a popular app for listening to podcasts. And these are just two of many interviews I have conducted today at the United Nations, and I'll bring the rest of them to you next week in a special edition of the Global Dispatches podcast. Bye for now.